half these hymns are meant to be sung about twice as fast as we normally see them. By the time I get up here to start teaching, you all are about to fall asleep. <laughs> so this morning we were just probably a little, little perky, but about time we got it. I'd rather err a little on the perky side than on the dirge side. You know, these are meant, like Jim pointed out, these are supposed to be hymns praising God out of the joy we have and not sitting here singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. <laughs> so we're trying to perk things up a little bit and have a little energy here on Sunday morning and sing them in the spirit in which they were intended to be sung. Several of these are marches, and a march should have a good vibrant beat to it and not a slow funereal sound. So, anyway, enough about that. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As we prepare for our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that it is God the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us the Scripture, makes it understandable to us so that we can apply it in our lives. He is the one who makes it clear to us where to apply it, how and when to apply it. We must therefore come to the study of Scripture under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And we have this as a result of our confession of sin. Confession of sin is a matter of privacy of our priesthood between us and God the Father. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer where we... Confess our sins to God the Father, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume the spiritual life. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ for our redemption, that he went to the cross and there he paid the penalty for every sin in human history, past, present, and future. We thank you for the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, that he is the unique person of all the universe, and he is the one who we look to and whom we praise as we learn about him and as we study His word, the word which is called the mind of Christ, that we might have his character uh, reflected and exemplified in our lives under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us so that we can see how to apply these things in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5, verse 31. John 5, verse 31. We are in the midst of studying one of the most powerful presentations and explanations of the deity of Jesus Christ in all of the Scriptures. This discourse began back in verse 16, where Jesus is explaining through the use of five distinct verbs 
his relationship to God the Father. In light of the strict monotheism or rigid monotheism of the Jews, this was a bombshell because he was making himself equal with God. And from verse 18 on, he is clarifying what he means by equality with God. He is saying that they are equal in that they do the same works. Only the works of the Father does the Son do. He does not operate independently of the Father. You see, there is a wrong way to be equal or to claim equality and a right way to claim equality. We know that in certain systems today, as we look around, we see people claiming to be claiming equality and wanting equality, and what they really want is independence and insubordination. We see this, for example, in the feminist movement. Feminist movement operates on the assumption that being subordinate, it means being less than equal. And yet what the Scriptures tells us is that in terms of the ultimate reality of the universe, which is the Trinity, that the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are co-equal, co-infinite, and consubstantial. Consubstantial means that they have exactly the same essence. We have described this in our chart on the essence of God, that God is sovereign, righteous. We use the symbol plus R indicating perfect righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, immutability, and veracity. This is the character of God. The, the old creed said the substance of God or what we call the essence of God. That's why classically... The definition of the Trinity is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-equal, and consubstantial. They have the same identical substance. Now, there are two applications of the Trinity. I find it sad that in most churches, or in many churches, when you discuss the Trinity, the implications and applications of the concept are not really delineated. And I think that's because a lot of pastors don't have the training. But there's two applications for the Trinity. Let's draw the, a triune diagram here. We'll draw a triangle, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, they all have the same essence. They are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. Now, this means that they, in essence, they are absolutely equal. And yet, volitionally... They, there is subordination within the Trinity related to the distinct roles of each member of the Trinity. Trinity means they have one essence and exist in three distinct persons. So, one application I just mentioned, which relates to marriage and the role of men and women. They are equal in terms of their essence. Yet there is a distinction of role. That distinction of role flows from the fact that God designed the male soul and the female soul to function differently related to the plan and purposes that God had for them in human history. God created Adam first and foremost and placed him in a rulership position over the garden and over the earth. And then he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will design a helper for him. And the word there is an assistant. 
So the woman is created in order to assist the male in the task of subduing creation. That's the relationship in marriage ultimately. It goes back to this this distinction that the man is the head of the home and the woman and the wife is designed to be his assistant and helper as they together as a team work to subdue whatever arena of creation they're involved in with their job, the home, and the family. But it is like a corporation in that it is a unity. There is, uh, in terms of individual identity, there is essential equality, but there is distinction in role, just like on a good football team. You might have a running back that's a Heisman Trophy winner, and you may have a quarterback that's just somewhat two steps above mediocrity. And yet the quarterback is the captain of the team. Now, in terms of his ability as a football player, he may not have the ability of his running back. But the running back has to subordinate himself, if he has authority orientation as a good football player, to the authority of the the quarterback. Everybody has to operate on a team, and there are roles, but that does not mean just because one person is, is in a subordinate role that they have less ability, less capacity, and in many cases you might find that just as in any teamwork, any corporate environment, um, the people who are in subordinate roles have more talent, more ability, more intelligence than the person in authority. But you have to have those authority relationships and the, the role model in order for the team to work. And God has designed that specifically in human history. Now there's another application of this that has a little... Normally I wouldn't go into this, but in light of what's going on right now in in Kosovo and what's happening now, now we refer to this as Central Europe and not Eastern Europe, if you want to be correct and up to date. Uh, What's taking place here? And Yesterday I was reading a a book review that was dealing... a very extensive book review that was dealing with various geopolitical theories and events in understanding what's going on in Eastern Europe and Central Europe and the whole Balkan problem is such a mare's nest. You know, most of us don't even want to think about it. But the implication of this, this, the theory that this book is critiquing is a theory that you can take a line of demarcation between Western Europe and Western civilization and what, for the sake of this, Eastern or Central Europe. And over here we have two dominant, over here we have the dominant religion is either Roman Catholic Christianity or Protestantism. And over here you have Eastern Orthodoxy. And this kind of splits the Balkans right down the middle. And Islam. And the thesis of this geopolitical theory was that the West is always going to have a predilection and basis for having democracy. And we'll use that term very loosely for the sake of this discussion. And Eastern Europe is always going to be headed for some kind of a dictatorship, some kind of authoritarian, totalitarian regime. Now, why is that? One thing I keep coming back to with you again and again and again is to try to show from real life examples why doctrine matters, why theology matters. That, that believing the Trinity is not just some nice thing related simply to salvation, but it has implications in culture 
and in history and in political theory and in economic theory. Now, this is going to be a little steep for some of you, but just hang in there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is an interesting, relevant, contemporary illustration. The bi- one of the biggest, most fundamental problems in philosophy, I'm soon, I've lost half of you right now as soon as I said that, is the problem of what is called the one and the many. Sometimes it's expressed as the problem of unity and diversity. Let me put it this way, in the, or, sometimes, or sometimes being and becoming. If you, if, if you take political theory and you're heavy on emphasizing the one, what kind of a political system are you going to end up with? The state rules, totalitarianism, dictatorship. If you go to the other extreme and you emphasize the many, all the individual details, you just have rampant anarchy. Okay? That's basically where this is going politically. Now, man in his autonomy, and we're going to deal with this in in this passage in John 5, man in his autonomy wants to start his thinking at independent reference points, whether it's rationalism or empiricism, and man wants to start within himself, his own thinking or his own experience, and work its way outward to define reality. But the problem that you have ultimately in any philosophical system is they can't resolve the, the problem when you get to your ultimate reality of how do you what's ultimate, more ultimate, unity or diversity, the one or the many. When you get over here, you end up in various forms of idealism, Hegelianism, Platonism, where you emphasize this other reality of oneness and individual identity is lost and irrelevant. You get over here, you get into pure raw empiricism, Aristotelianism, things like that, and the details have all the value and there's no real unifying feature. And that has all kinds of implications. But the root issue is, as a Christian, as a believer, your starting point is the Word of God, the self-revelation of the triune God, to put it in heavy terms, of the ontological and economic trinity. This is our foundation for all thought. Is because when you start with the Trinity, God is what? God is in His very essence. God, the ultimate reality and standard in the universe, is what? He is one and He is three and one person together forever. You have in Christianity the only basis of thought, of thinking, of intellectual development that solves the problem of the one and the many. And so you, you have... In the history of Christianity, you have the early creeds, which are called the ecumenical creeds, and we studied these as we've gone through this passage with the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, and the basic, the basic uh, what's called early, early creeds, ecumenical creeds. And they define for us the Trinity. Now, in the definition of the Trinity, I think it was at the Council of Ephesus, makes a statement in relationship in defining the relationship of the Holy Spirit, says that the Holy Spirit proceeds, and we're going to come back and study this in more detail when we get to John 15 and 16, um, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now that was in about the 5th century that that creed was written. Several centuries later, there was a, another church conference held at a place called Toledo. 
in Spain, and it was called the Synod of Toledo. And there they added a clause. The English translation is, and the son. The Latin phrase was filioque. And so it's known to church historians as the filioque clause. And the Western church adopted this phrase because it implied equality of unity and role distinction within the Trinity. The Eastern Orthodox Church said, we don't buy that, you can't change the old creeds, the Holy Spirit comes just from the Father, not from the Father and the Son, and so they end up with a Trinity that is like this, Fathered to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, and it is not co-equality ultimately in its essence. So what happens? This impacts political theory. You work it out, your ultimate starting point is going to be a triune God or a God that's really not triune. And the result is that this produces in Eastern Orthodoxy an ultimate authoritarian concept that has always produced authoritarian abuses in all, everywhere it is, everywhere it's located. And you have the same kind of structure in Islam, which is a rigid monotheism where Allah is absolute authority. So that is why, when this guy makes his analysis, that the reason the West, because of the, the West, because of its roots in Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, is going to always have a predilection towards democracy and the East is always going to have this problem with dictatorship, is because the ultimate reference point in the, in the ideological thinking is determined by their concept of God. Now, that's a heavy thought for this morning. But some of you are sitting back there smiling because you're enjoying this. You see, what we get in church so often is such little superficial goodies about Christianity that most of us aren't challenged to realize that Christianity as a thinking system is the most advanced, sophisticated system in all of human history and puts to shame, puts to shame all of, the, all of those intricate systems of Aristotle, Plato, Descartes, Locke, Hegel, Kant, whomever. The Bible is much more sophisticated and provides the ideological basis to deal with everything in uh, human reality. Now, let's get back to John 5. That was just some fun little stimulation to help us understand why doctrine matters. It changes everything. John 5, 31. Now, the situation here is that Jesus has healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath, and he has really angered the Pharisees. The religious crowd cannot put up with it. The religion always hates grace. Religion is always antagonistic to Jesus. Always remember that religion, especially Christian religions, I use that term in quotes, always wraps itself in the mantle of pro-Jesus words in biblical terminology while at the same time dismantling the work of Christ and rejecting the grace of God at the core of its thinking. That's the trouble with legalism. Legalism puts its emphasis on human works, trying to gain God's approval, man trying to gain God's approval through man's own efforts. But biblical Christianity is God doing all the work, and man simply accepts it or receives it by faith alone in Christ alone. 
The thing is that hell is going to be filled with millions of very devout religious people who never understood the grace of God. Scripture says, For by grace ye have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And religion emphasizes works and morality over grace and spirituality. Morality, remember, as we've studied in Galatians, is an ethical system that God designed for the stability and perpetuation and preservation of the human race. Morality is for believers and unbelievers alike, but anything the unbeliever can do is not the spiritual life. And unbelievers can be very upright and very moral and do many good things, but it doesn't cut any ice with God. It doesn't gain God's approval one little bit, and it is a product of the sin nature, and the Bible calls it dead works and human good. God says all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So that man trying to gain God's approval on the basis of his own works may look good, may have a lot of religious system systems, but it doesn't do any good. The other thing we've seen in this is the interplay between the two terms, Son of God and Son of Man. These are terms that meant a lot to the Jews at that day. When Jesus calls himself the Son of God, they realize that he is calling himself God. It is a term that indicates his undiminished deity. Son of Man, on the other hand, identifies him with himself He identified himself with true humanity. He's related to Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. He is the ideal man who is able to fulfill the rulership that God delegated to Adam and which Adam lost at the fall. So Jesus Christ is the unique person of the universe. He is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. Now, he has made these claims in verses 18 down uh, down through 30. And then from 31 on he is going to validate his claims. And this is a very important issue for us, and especially if you've ever witnessed to somebody and they, you you give them the gospel, explain the gospel to them, and they say, well, how do you know that's true? Now you have a test. Now you have a crucial test. Because now you're either going to cave in to human viewpoint rationalism and empiricism, and you're going to destroy your whole case for Christianity... Or you're going to take a stand on the absolute truth of Scripture. And the sad thing is most Christians don't understand this. And Jesus exemplifies this for us in this chapter in in a remarkable way. We've touched on this with Nicodemus. We've touched on it again with how he explained the gospel to the woman at the well. And now we're going to see it here. This gives us a clue as to how apologetics... Apologetics is the study of the defense of the faith, how you defend Christianity against its attacks, and how the early church, early church fathers defended Christianity. They did not attempt to prove Christianity. What we see in Jesus' articulation here in his strategy is not so much a formal proof in the sense that logic or philosophy might say we need to construct a formal proof. What he does is he demonstrates the inadequacy and the falsity of his opponent's position that they can't live on the basis, consistently on the basis of their own assumptions. So let's see how he does this. Verse 31. He says, If I alone, and notice the word alone is in italics, that means it's not in the original Greek. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now wait a minute, what is Jesus saying here? At first glance, it looks as if Jesus is saying that if he testifies about himself, which is what he's just done, then his testimony is false. Wait a minute. 
that's, that can't be true because if he is God, then he is also veracity. He is just claimed to be God, therefore he must be absolute truth. So he couldn't be lying. So that's not what it means. Let's take this thing apart. It's very interesting. He starts off with a third class condition in the Greek. Now, a third class condition indicates, uh, is almost like a pure condition where the condition is uncertain of fulfillment. Maybe yes, maybe no, maybe one way, maybe the other. So he's saying, using this third class condition here, and he's saying, um, maybe, or, or if, maybe I will, maybe I won't, if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Well, before we get any further, maybe we need to stop and try to understand this word in the Greek, martyreo, which is spelled M-A-R-T-U-R-E-O and is the basic word for giving a legal testimony or witness. And we find this word scattered throughout the Gospel of John. It is a fundamental theme in John's presentation of the Gospel. Remember, John is writing this Gospel that you may know with certainty, absolute, unqualified certainty, that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. Now, when he begins that verse... He says, these are written, and that these refer to the signs that are mentioned in the previous verse. These signs are written. And John mentions eight signs, including the resurrection, in the Gospel of John. So these are written. So what John is doing is he's saying, I'm going to build a case. I'm going to demonstrate for you the truth of a proposition. And that proposition is that Jesus is the Messiah, and that if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. Now, in order to demonstrate that proposition, I'm going to marshal evidence. I'm going to bring to bear certain signs and certain witnesses. And these witnesses are going to take the stand in the court. And we're going to interview them, and we're going to look at their witness, and their witness will validate these claims. Now, most of these witnesses are found in this particular chapter. But before we get past there, let's summarize this under the category of the doctrine of the witnesses in John. First of all, we have to define the term. Martyreo denotes the attestation or affirmation of some person or event which might be the object of skepticism or antagonism. It denotes the validation or the attestation of a person or event And the nuance is that they're probably being attacked. They're the object of antagonism or skepticism. Point number two, this word came to designate the summary of the apologetic teaching that John is advancing in defense of Jesus and his work. This summarizes what John is saying about Jesus. We're going to give our testimony and we're going to validate who and what Jesus is as the Messiah. It doesn't refer primarily to the corroboration of his historical existence. John's not trying to prove that he existed as in opposition to that he didn't exist, or that he did what he did. But he is going to validate that he is who he claimed to be, and that he performed what he claimed to perform, that he is the Son of God, and that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. 
John Marshall's seven witnesses. This is point four. John Marshall's seven witnesses, and five are mentioned in this chapter. Five of them are mentioned in this passage. So that tells us that we've got to do some digging to find out just exactly what the Bible is going to mean by validation and proof and demonstrating truth. The only two witnesses in John that are left out of this of this chapter are the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned later, and the witness of people like the woman at the well and the witness of the disciples. So he's focusing on five, and these are going to be five crucial, uh, five crucial witnesses. Point number five, let's summarize them so we know what we're going to get into before we get there. There is the witness of the Father, the Father's witness to who and what Jesus Christ is. He has, Jesus has already claimed that He is the intimate object of the Father's love back in verse 20 and that He is the one to whom the Father has delegated all judgment in human history. So the witness of the Father is especially, and, and He also says that the witness of the Father is displayed in the works that Jesus performed. So there's the witness of the Father is point five, point six, Jesus' own witness of Himself. Though He doesn't rely on that here, He will in John 8:14 he mentions it here verse 7 there is the witness of John the Baptist and he goes to John the Baptist merely as a concession to the finitude of his audience he's going to concede this he's not saying this is my ultimate validation as we'll see but he 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 recalls that witness of John for the virtue of his human audience Point number eight, his miracles, the works of Jesus. And then point nine, the witness of the Scripture. So five is the witness of the Father. Six is Jesus' witness of himself. Seven is the witness of John the Baptist. Eight is the witness of Jesus' miracles, his works. And nine is the witness of the Scripture. Now, when Jesus says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true, don't jump the gun and jump to conclusions here that Jesus is referencing the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, this was a very important principle for jurisprudence that any charge that was brought against somebody had to be validated by at least two witnesses. This would take care of anybody who was lying, who was on a vendetta against somebody, or who made something up, trumped up some charges, but there had to be at least two witnesses to a fact. Now, this is reconfirmed in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So hold your place here and turn to John 8 because there's an apparent contradiction. Here, it seems that, John is, that Jesus is saying, if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. And then in John 8.14, Jesus seems to say just the opposite. In John 8.14... Jesus says, in answer to the charge of the Pharisees, let's back up to verse 12. The context is important. Jesus says, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him on this point. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Point. If you are the only confirmation, confirmatory witness to this claim to deity, then it's false. You've got to have, they're saying you have to have, they're appealing to the Mosaic Law, they're saying you have to have two or three witnesses. And Jesus answered in rebuttal, and He says in verse 14, 
Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Now, we have to look at the Greek on this because you don't get the real thrust of what Jesus is saying in our English. It sounds as if Jesus is saying the same thing. He starts off saying, even if I bear witness of myself, and in John 5.31 he says, if I bear witness of myself. But in John 5 he uses a third class condition, and in John chapter 8 he uses a um, first class condition. My, my, my. It really pays to know the Greek. It solves a lot of problems. This is a, he uses a first class conjunction, I mean a first class condition, but he uses the conjunction of chi and aeon, or chi, and he, it's a concessive nuance, and it should be translated, and even though I witness concerning myself. And the sense of what he's saying, he's saying, and even if I am the only one who witnesses concerning myself, you just challenge me that saying that if I witness against myself, I'm telling the truth. He's saying, even if I'm the only one who witnessed because I am the ultimate reference point in the universe, and I am God and I am truth, I am the light of the world, to what does the light of the world appeal to for its validation? There's nothing higher. If Jesus, Jesus is saying here, even if I am the only one who's witnessing to myself, my witness is true because I'm God. And to whom is God going to refer? There's no outside standard for God to refer to. Now this is important because when we sit down with an unbeliever and we explain the deity of Christ, what happens is we're asked, how do you know this is true? Now we're making a statement here on the basis of Scripture X, that Jesus is God. Now watch, watch the trap. The unbeliever is operating over here on human viewpoint autonomous reason. And his concept of truth, his concept of proof, his concept of validation, and even in the sentence, how do you know this truth, his concept of knowledge is all based on human viewpoint autonomous concepts of reason. Whereas you're approaching the gospel from divine viewpoint, from what the Scripture says. Now, the Scripture says that if Jesus is who He claims to be, and He is God, then God, by virtue of His very nature, is absolute truth. God is the standard of truth. Now, what the unbeliever wants is some autonomous, independent standard of truth that we can both appeal to. But if you really believe God is the absolute standard of truth, then there's no autonomous concept out here, category called truth, that you can appeal to. He is the ultimate reference point in the universe. He is the ultimate standard. You can't, as soon as you get caught in that trap and try to, prove the Scriptures on the basis of human viewpoint concepts, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to prove the truth of Scripture on the basis of a false system of knowledge. And you've already lost the battle. You're going to use human viewpoint reasoning 
to try and, and a human viewpoint concept of truth and a human viewpoint concept of proof to try to demonstrate absolute truth. Now, Jesus is going to show us that you don't have to do that. The issue isn't that complicated. The issue is going to be very, very simple. The implication is that if we try to prove Christianity... Oh, let me back up. Go back to John 5.31. I missed a point. If John 5... In John chapter 8, Jesus is saying, even if I am the only one who's witnessing to myself, my witness is true. He's answering a different question and it's in a different context than in John 5. What's been the context in John 5? In John 5, Jesus has been saying, I can't do anything independent of the Father. What the Father does, I do. What the Father tells me to do, I do. What the Father judges, He delegates to me, and I judge. Everything the Father says to do, I do. I'm in complete complete equality with God, but I am not independent of God. I'm not doing it my way. I'm doing it God's way. So when he comes to verse 31, he says, If I bear witness of myself apart from the Father, my witness isn't true. That's what he's saying. And the context will bear me out. Look at verse 32. There is another, and the Greek here is alas, another of the same kind. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. Now, then he's going to enter into a parenthetical argument from verses 32 or verses 33 down through 36. He's going to talk about John the Baptist. But then in verse 37, he comes back and he says, And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. So the witness he's talking about that validates him in verse 33, in verse 32 is the Father. Now, human viewpoint reasoning is going to say, well, this is a circular argument. But the problem is that if Jesus is who He claims to be, he's go- what, what do we expect? If Jesus is God, and He is the ultimate reference point of the universe, we expect Him to appeal to Himself as the ultimate reference point of the universe. If Jesus had appealed to autonomous reason to validate the fact that he was God, that if he does what some people think this passage is doing, and he appealed to John the Baptist, the creature, as his ultimate validation, he wouldn't be who he claimed to be. If Jesus... I want you to catch it. This is very sophisticated. If Jesus is who he claims to be, which is the ultimate standard of truth in the universe, then he can't appeal to anything other than himself to prove it. So the way Jesus handles the argument proves who He is. It's not circular. It's what we should expect of Him if He is who He claims to be. Now, I know that some of you are just going to have to think about that. Because that's not that easy to get our minds around, especially if this is the first time you've ever heard anything like that. The implication from all of this methodologically is that if we try to prove Christianity, what Jesus is saying, if I try to prove myself independent of the Father, then I've invalidated myself. I have to remain in this position of subordination to the Father. The implication is, if we try to prove Christianity in a non-scriptural way, just as if Jesus tried to prove His deity in a non-biblical way, He would have invalidated His claim. If we try to prove Christianity in a non-scriptural way, then our proofs are invalid and not scriptural. We can't let the unbeliever who's operating on autonomous rationalism and empiricism 
existentialism or idealism or any other pagan system of thought define the terms and the issues for us. He's got to march on God's agenda and not his agenda. And so we have to control the terms of definition in the conversation. Now, remember, he can be negative and reject the whole thing, and that's his decision. Truth, authority, and the issues that we're going to talk about, like what about the heathen? Don't go there. What about suffering? Don't go there. They don't have the capacity. Remember, the Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now, the natural man there, the Greek word, is very important. It is sukikos, from suke, meaning soul. The soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Man was originally created trichotomous, body, soul, and spirit. The soul is his thinking part, his, his uh, self-consciousness, uh, mentality, vol- emotion, volition, conscience. That's the soul. The human spirit is that immaterial element that combines with the soul that enabled man to have a relationship with God and to understand the things of God. But with spiritual death, the human spirit died, and man could not have a relationship with God and understand God, so the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. So when you start trying to answer questions like creation and evolution, what about the heathen, what about suffering, and get off onto all these rabbit trails, you're talking to somebody who doesn't have the equipment to handle the answers, and you're talking another language to him. Don't get sidetracked. Now, sometimes it's legitimate. It's a real issue with them and say, look, there's an answer. We just, you don't know all the facts. I don't know all the facts. But this is what I do know. What about the heathen? God honors everybody's volition. God is fair. God is just. Give them just a brief framework and then get right back to the issue. Don't get sidetracked. Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, so witnessing in a wrong way is wrong. If you're witnessing and at the same time your way you're witnessing has compromised at a basic epistemological level with human viewpoint relativism, then you've undercut your, your stand. Now, you may be talking to somebody who's not sophisticated or intelligent enough to understand that, and God the Holy Spirit may and often does override our human inadequacies. But Jesus isn't doing that. Secondly, a wrong thing done in the wrong way is wrong. This sort of reminds me of a story I heard about a topless dancer who became a believer and had John 3.16 tattooed across her belly so that when she was doing her topless dancing, she was witnessing. That's a wrong thing done in the wrong way. Okay, wrong thing done in the wrong way is, is wrong, and a wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is wrong. The content has to be right, and the methodology has to be right. Now, I want you to understand something. When I start talking about methodology and how you do what you do is as important as what you do, it just goes over the heads of most people, because we're always taught in our pragmatic American society to focus on what you do and not how you do it. As long as how you do it gains results, it must be right. It must be right. I mean, this is inherent to American evangelicalism going back to the Second Great Awakening in 1805. That if I can get out here and get 100,000 people into a stadium and get everybody shouting praise Jesus and walking the aisle, then it must be from God. But, you know, in the power of the flesh, I can raise, you can go out here and for any kind of charity, you can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you can get lots of people to flock to your cause. Just look at the cults. 
All in the power of the flesh. But if you're doing a right thing in God's way, it's going to be different and it's hard to think about methodology. Now, when we talk about this and we're talking about the issue of how to use facts to prove Christianity, we must understand what the Bible means about truth and Christianity and how to use facts. You have a lot of good books out there. But some of these books do have a false orientation, like, like McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That is a fantastic book. It gives you tremendous data that substantiates and gives evidence for the truth and veracity of Christianity. And frankly, I doubt that I would be where I am today if it weren't for that book. Somebody gave that to me when I was having a lot of intellectual questions in college, and it really told me that, look, there, you don't have to put your brain in neutral when you become a believer. But facts are not going to argue the unbeliever into heaven because facts aren't the issue. The issue is that he has been in moral rejection of God, according to Romans 1, 18 and 19, since God consciousness. He is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The issue is not, a, the problem is not rational. The problem is not empirical. The problem is spiritual. The problem is that at the moment of God consciousness, they have rejected the truth. Now, even if they went positive, they don't know the truth. And if they are positive, then when you bring them the gospel, eventually they're going to be a believer. Not necessarily the first time. Sometimes you may have to witness to somebody who is positive at God consciousness 50 times before they finally trust the gospel. Just because they were positive at God consciousness, they may be negative later. And it may take time. But we all know people who become believers later in life and they've resisted and resisted and resisted. They've heard the gospel a thousand times. And it's not till the thousand and one time that they become a believer. Well, because they became a believer the thousand and one time, I'm assuming that a God consciousness, it must have been positive. It just that. that it took the Holy Spirit a while to break that down and get them back to the point of God consciousness. So it's not the facts, it's how we use the facts. We can't prove Christianity true on the basis of a human viewpoint concept of proof or truth or their values or their concepts of absolutes. So Jesus says, If I alone bear witness, that is, if I bear witness independent of the Father, my testimony is not true because then I would be acting independent of the Father. I would be violating my role and my position as the Son of God and my my ultimate validation is on the basis of the Father. Then, he says in verse 33, You have sent to John and he has borne witness of me and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. So, he goes to John the Baptist. Now, this is really a temporary concession to the creatureness of his audience. He is not appealing to John the Baptist to validate his claims for deity. Because notice he says in verse 34, The witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. In other words, this witness of John is not my validation. I'm just saying this because you guys, you Pharisees, remember he's talking to the religious crowd here, 
They're all up in arms because he healed the cripple on the Sabbath day and they're challenging him as a violator of the Mosaic Law. And so Jesus tells him that he's not a violator of the Mosaic Law. He's continuing to work in sustaining the universe just as the Father continues to work. And if they want him to stop working, then he'll stop holding the universe together and they'll just all go into oblivion. That's the thrust of his argument. But he says, you sent to John, and the Greek word there is apostello, the verbal form of the noun apostolos, and it means to send out an official commission in that instance. They sent out, they had to, they saw John attracting all the crowds in the wilderness, and they sent out to investigate. What's going on out there with John? So he says, you sent out an official commission to investigate John, and he bore witness, that is, he gave testimony to the truth, absolute truth. But, he says in contrast, verse 34, The witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. So the witness that he has is not ultimately dependent on man. It's not dependent on what the woman at the well said. It's not dependent upon what John the Baptist said. It's not dependent upon what the disciples said. It's based on what? It's based on his self-authenticating witness. Now this is the most, one of the most difficult things, but it's for some people to understand, but it's simple. And it gives us great confidence when we're witnessing. And that is the fact that the Word of God is what it is and it has a self-authenticating validation to it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's go back and see what the Scripture says in John chapter 16. I mean, Luke, Luke chapter 16. This is a very important passage. The more I go to this passage, the more I am astounded by the implications. The background is that this is a story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is a beggar outside the gates of the rich man. The rich man never looks at him. Lazarus is a believer. The rich man is an unbeliever. They both die. Uh, They end up in Sheol or Hades, which has two compartments. One compartment is paradise or Abraham's bosom. Lazarus is a believer. He ends up there. That's the place for Old Testament saints. And... um, the rich man ends up in torments, which is fiery torments, which is not hell yet, but they will all end up in the lake of fire. And a conversation takes place between the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man wants Lazarus to go, he wants Abraham to release Lazarus so that he can go back as, and, and witness to his brothers so his family doesn't end up where he is. And I want you to notice the response. Verse 29, But Abraham said, Now, here's his question. He says, I have five brothers, in verse 28, I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they also come to the place of torment. In other words, if they have empirical data verifying the gospel, if they just see this guy come back to life, they'll believe him and they'll avoid this. Empiricism. That's our normal thing. If we can just prove the gospel to people, give them that empirical data, show them the empty tomb. That's coming up next week. Show them the empty tomb with Resurrection Sunday. That proves it. Well, a guy up at Harvard said, no, it just proves that there was this aberration in history that some guy did it. It doesn't mean that he's deity. It doesn't mean that he's, it doesn't validate his claims at all. You see, if you're operating on autonomous human viewpoint reason, you don't have to accept it because you're in irrationalism. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What's the point? If you don't accept the validation of Scripture, which is the voice of God and carries its own authentication with it, it doesn't matter how much you see, how much you reason, 
independent, autonomous empiricism and rationalism will never get you there. No matter how much they experience a resurrected person who comes back and says, this is what happened, the ultimate issue isn't experience or reason. The issue is the witness of the Scriptures. And so this is where Jesus is going to go in His argument. Let's go back to John 5. This is where Jesus will go to in His argument ultimately in this passage, and we'll get there next week to talk about the uniqueness of the Scriptures. So, with John's witness, they sent out a commission to check out what John said, and John, well, John's really interesting. This guy has a reclusive personality. He does everything a seminary teaches you not to do to gain crowds. He goes out into the desert. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been out to Arizona or the desert southwest or out into west Texas or central Texas, but... He, you go out in the middle of the Chihuahuan Desert and you start preaching your message. There's nobody out there. You know, modern, modern church growth says you have to do your market analysis and your sociological studies and you have to get out there and do everything to please people. And that's operating on human viewpoint, by the way. That is not what the Scripture says. The Scripture's principle is that God will provide the hearers. That our job is to be faithful to the text and God will provide the hearers. And I would rather have... 50 or 60 people who wanted to learn the Word of God and wanted to grow to spiritual maturity than 500 or 600 people. But human viewpoint is always impressed with numbers. And so the religious crowd had to go out and check out John because thousands and thousands of people are flocking out of the city to check out John. And here he is. He probably didn't take a bath very frequently. Or maybe he did. He was in the water baptizing a lot. He wears his old camel hair robes. He's got a weird diet. He's... uh, He's not very friendly. He's, he, he sees him and he calls him a bunch of vipers. So he hasn't read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. He never would have passed a course in pastoral ministries. And yet he attracts the crowd because of his message, because of his content. You see, our world is a world that lives on image. And we attract people by the image it projects. The Bible says it's not the wrapping. It's the package. It's not how you do it or or how you present it. It's the content. The content is what attracted people. John's message was to the person of Christ that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. He preached a message of a change of mental attitude. That's what the word repent means. Matthew 3.2 He taught the mechanics of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Acts 19.4 And he himself was focused and occupied with the person of Christ. In John 1.30 he said, He must increase and I must decrease. In verse 35 it says that John was the lamp. The lamp has to borrow its energy, its light, its fuel source from somewhere else. Jesus is the light. John was the lamp. John was a reflection. He was a creature. He was dependent upon the light. But he is a lamp that was burning. Now, the people went out to see his ministry were only superficially positive. Sometimes they were positive at the gospel, but once they started hearing the real content of his message, they left him. They weren't interested in that. With the um, religious crowd, they wanted to capitalize on his gimmick find out what he's doing to get so many people out there so they could do it. That's what happens today. You get a guy, there's a couple of people in this country right now 
One's in Chicago, one's in, down near San Diego, and they are the gurus of the church growth movement. They've written all these books, and everybody, every pastor who wants a lot of people in his church is reading their books, and then they're going out and trying to do the same thing. See, that's human viewpoint thinking. We're not saying, look, the Bible says that God provides the hearers. He who builds the house apart from the Lord labors in vain. It is unless the Lord builds the house. It doesn't matter. Numbers are not, numbers only impress human viewpoint thinkers. God's not looking at numbers. God's looking at quality. God's looking at content. But human viewpoint religion looks at the numbers, looks at the methodologies, attracted by the, by the rhetoric. Human viewpoint wants the power without the content. But in Christianity, the power is the content. It's the message. It's, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is the word of God that's powerful. It is not our methodology. It is not our techniques. It's not trying to figure out which way to present ourselves, what kind of cover we should have on the bulletin, what kind of programs we should have to go out and knock on doors and beg people and bully people to get to church, make them feel guilty. That's not the issue. The issue is you teach the Word of God and God will provide the hearers. The truth is what attracts people. But what's hard is when you're living in an age of negative volition, when people are rejecting the truth because then people don't come out to hear the truth because they want to go where the miracles are. They want to go watch the signs and wonders because that's where the special effects are. You know, we like the movies with the big special effects. We like the churches that have the special effects. Just because these things are happening does not mean they come from God. Jesus healed to validate his message, but it was his message that had the power. It wasn't the healing. The healing didn't save anybody. The healing didn't sanctify anybody. Healings and miracles don't save and don't sanctify and they don't solve problems. It is the content of the gospel and the message of spiritual life and spiritual growth doctrine that provides the message and the way to be saved and to grow spiritually and to solve problems. Healings and miracles don't do it, folks. It's content that does it. And that's not easy. So they went out to see John. He was a lamp that was burning and was shining. There was an intensity from his, from his content and it attracted people. And Jesus says, And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They were like moths attracted to the flame, but they didn't want the flame. They just wanted all the stimulation and excitement. And then Jesus said, verse 36, But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. It's greater than any validation you can come up with. You can marshal all the facts of evidence. Now, evidence that evidence for this Christianity is one thing. Proof is another. Don't confuse the two. Evidence means just that you don't have to put your mind in neutral to accept the truth of Christianity. But the ultimate proof of Christianity is in the self-authenticating message of the Word of God. So they were willing to rejoice for a while. They wanted the crowds, they wanted the stimulation, but they didn't want the content. Jesus said, The witness I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, these very works that I do, this is the healings and the miracles that were done under the authority of God and in the power of God the Holy Spirit in, in some ways. In some ways they were not done in the power of the Holy Spirit, but in His own power to demonstrate His own deity. For example, his, uh, 
when, when Jesus changed the water into wine. He didn't do that by means of the Holy Spirit. He did that to demonstrate that He was the God of the universe and that He had creative power. When He walks on the water, He does that Himself to show His control over nature. Many of the miracles were done in the power of the Holy Spirit. He cast out demons and said, by means of God the Holy Spirit. But He did other things in His own power because they demonstrated His deity, that He was God. But He only did that which the Father gave Him to do. He was in complete subordination to the Father and remained completely equal to the Father. And then verse 37, And the Father who sent Me, He has borne witness of Me. And then He really slams Him. I mean, this is a double-fisted insult. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. Now, you've got to think about this like a Pharisee. They know the Old Testament. Who heard God's voice? That rebellious Exodus generation. I mean, these guys were whiners and moaners and complained all the way through the wilderness for 40 years and ended up not being able to go into the land because of their carnality. But they were at Sinai when God spoke to the nation and they heard the voice of God. And God's saying, you Pharisees, you're not even that good. You've never heard the voice of God and those losers did. Not only that, but Jacob wrestled with the angel, and saw the backside, saw the form of God, and you're not as good as Jacob. You're priding yourself on your relationship to Abraham and who you are as a Jew, and you're not as good as some of the worst Jews that ever lived. You guys are failures. This Jesus did not take Dale Carnegie's course either. Jesus and John the Baptist would not have passed a course in seminary today because they're operating on a completely different set of principles than what we find in most seminaries today. And then in verse 38, he comes to the issue, you do not have His Word abiding in you. And now he's going to shift and talk about the witness of the Scripture. And this is powerful to understand the self-authenticating validation of the Scripture. It doesn't need to appeal to some other source for proof because it is absolute truth. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, and this is the written Word of God, the mind of Christ. So it has the same self-authenticating, validating power that Jesus had. And we will look at that when we come back next Sunday morning and look at the Scriptures and this unique witness that we have in the Scriptures to the person and work of Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the tremendous privilege that we have to look at Your Word and that we have a completed canon of Scripture and that we as church-age believers have been provided with this unique spiritual life based upon the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that it is a life that cannot be lived out on the basis of anything other than the unique power of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the power of Your Word. And we thank You for Your Word and the fact that it sheds its light upon the path and course of our life and on every aspect of our thinking so that we can learn to think your thoughts after you and that we can live out our life and our experience no matter where our paths take us, no matter where our courses go. We know that your word has given us the framework for understanding uh, these different areas of of creation and for bringing them in subordination in our own minds under the the thinking, the thought absolutes, the Uh, cognitive principles of the Word of God.
Father, we pray too that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope or without eternal life or uncertain of their salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to clarify that issue. It's a matter of privacy between each individual and the Lord. All you have to do is say, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. At the instant you believe that Jesus died for you, you have eternal life. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we have studied, to think about them and reflect upon them and begin to see how they relate to other areas of doctrine and to see how they relate to not only our overt lives but our thought life, that we might be transformed from the inside out for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.